Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. We are delighted to bring you this special episode today to celebrate the launch of Aspie's fourth annual Counterterrorism Yearbook. While we are sad that we cannot host the live event we had planned, we're excited to bring you this special episode alongside a series of strategist posts that will highlight articles from the publication over the coming weeks. So keep an eye out. This year's edition features a stellar lineup of contributing authors brought together by Aspie's John Coyne and Isaac Kafir, including a preface penned by Mike Burgess of the Australian Security Intelligence Organization. Lead author John Coyne discusses the yearbook with Brendan Nicholson, executive editor of The Strategist. John then speaks with contributing authors Peter Lowe and Elise Thomas. But first, to introduce the publication, here is Peter Jennings, executive director of ASPE. Hi, this is Peter Jennings. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money. And I'm very pleased to be able to introduce to you our fourth counterterrorism yearbook, which is just being released in late March of 2020, uh, edited by Isaac Kefir and John Coyne. At this time when all we are doing is focusing in on coronavirus, I think it's useful to remember that there is a bigger world out there and indeed we are going to get through to the other side of the virus um, and regrettably issues of terrorism and counter-terrorism will continue to face us. What we've been doing with our counter-terrorism yearbooks for some time now, is trying to provide a detailed, comprehensive resource for people to understand not only the terrorism part of the equation, but the counter-terrorism demand that is placed on many governments around the world, including our own. This edition of the yearbook includes uh, an introduction from Mike Burgess, Director General of Security, the head of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. And Mike, in his introduction, makes a number of very valuable points. The first is to say that the language that ASIO has used to describe the terrorist threat in Australia is that it has plateaued at an unacceptable level. Mike says people may have misread the idea of plateauing to suggest that it's becoming less of an issue. He emphasises the term unacceptable level as demonstrating that there is a continuing need for Australia to remain highly focused on counter-terrorism. Mike also touches on an emerging problem that I guess the world has been more aware of since the shootings in Christchurch of about a year ago, and that is to say the rise of uh, extreme right-wing terrorism. Mike Burgess makes the point that this is a field which is becoming uh, potentially more problematic because extreme right-wing terrorist organisations are becoming more organised and also more conscious of their security than before, making them, in some respects, a harder target. Turning to the contents of the book, a new feature this year is that in addition to a number of country studies, uh, Yemen, Syria, uh, Marawi in the Philippines, uh, Salafist jihadism in Southeast Asia, um, we also focus in on a range of thematic and topical chapters as well. So there's some good work on contemporary right-wing extremism in Australia by Christy Champion. Uh, Elise Thomas from Aspie works on uh, aspects to do with the uh, online threat presented by the Christchurch shooting. Adrian Cherney talks about prison radicalisation and de-radicalisation in Australia. 
There are also chapters on cyber terrorism. And Sophia Patel, a visiting fellow at Aspie, now at uh, King's College London, talks about understanding women and Islamic State terrorism. Where are we now? All up, I recommend this book to you. Great work that Isaac Kafir and John Coyne have done to bring the fourth counterterrorism yearbook together. It won't necessarily cheer you up, but it will give you something to read that's not about COVID-19 and something that will last and be useful on your bookshelves for a good long time to come. Please enjoy the counterterrorism yearbook. John Coyne, Head of Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement here at ASPE, speaks with Brendan Nicholson about the trends in terrorism that have emerged over the last year. Hi there, John. Congratulations on the latest CT report. It's um, it's phenomenal. There's clearly a vast amount of work has gone into this and a, and a very wide range of views from a lot of experts. You know, what do, what do you see as the highlights? Um, look, thanks, first, Brendan, for having me. I, I guess for me, the real highlights of the fact that the breadth of what we're able to achieve with this fourth edition, um, the key themes I, that have come out from that really are that we're seeing uh, a decrease in the uh, the number of Salafi jihadist attacks at the same time as we're seeing a rise in the number of right-wing extremist activities, so uh, I guess a, a surging populism there. The secondly, is that it's that, that problem of the last two years, which is we've slowly seen the Islamic State, ISIS, being take, its territory being taken away. And we in the Western liberal democracies and elsewhere are struggling with the, the questions of what do we do um, with all these foreign fighters returning? Uh, what do we do with all the people that are coming out of jail who have been convicted of terrorist offences? And finally, like the rest of society, we're, is the real issue of technology. And that is both technology in the sense of the, the wide argument that's being played out in, in the public around encryption, but also in terms of, you know, is there such thing as cyber terrorism? Will there be such thing as cyber terrorism? And how do terrorist organisations and how do uh, politically motivated violent groups gain membership from engaging with tech? Mike Burgess made the point in your document that uh, the threat has plateaued but he makes the point that people can misunderstand that and he says that it's plateaued at an unacceptably high level. Now, can you just explain a little more about the the background to that? What is he thinking of in terms of possible threats and and what's keeping the threat level up there? Um, Look, I think this is the real important message for anyone who ever thinks about CT. Uh, in this country or any others, but certainly at the moment here in Australia, is, is, is the threat level. Threat is, uh, is calculated by looking at the capability and intent of someone to do something, so in this case, a terrorist activity. Currently, our national threat level is at that probable level, which means, that just as the word says, you know, we, we do an attack is probably likely to happen. And that is really because there's a, people out there with a the combination of, number one, they want to undertake terrorist attacks. And number two, they have the capability to do so. We're very fortunate in Australia, both with the um, our legislative arrangements, ASIO in terms of its intelligence capability and the Australian Federal Police, and who have been incredibly successful at disrupting plots. But that run of luck, you know, and you'll quite often hear the heads of, of intelligence and security agency talking about where luck plays in it. The run of luck has got to eventually run out. What's driving it? Well, at the end of the day, there's still a whole heap of people who are motivated by, by violent ideals. 
if they want to change the world, they're unhappy and dissatisfied. And that dissatisfaction has been preyed upon by groups. Now, we're seeing this play out in sort of polar opposites. And over the last couple of weeks with coronavirus, we're seeing it, where we see ISIS telling people if and their followers if they've got COVID-19 to go out and spread it because it's a gift from Allah and they should spread it across the globe. At the same time, we see similar statements being made in the dark parts of the web by right-wing extremists. And so that threat still prevails. And what keeps on doing it is that there's people don't know how to respond to being dissatisfied and they, they're not able to engage with mod, the modern liberal democracy in the way that they want to. And so they're reverting to violence. John, you mentioned the virus. Nations all over the world are dealing with this. Their, their populations are to some, suffering to one extent or another, some much more grievously than the, the, those amongst us who are, who are lucky. You're likely to wind up with a, an element of social disadvantage. Is that likely to actually worsen the possibility of radicalisation or terrorism re-emerging? Look, Brendan, I think I think absolutely. And my conversations with some of the other authors, and this year we really went to a lot of effort to get a, a wide variety of authors, so around about 19, I think it is, off the top of my head, and certainly many of them are worried. And the reason they're worried is this, is that terrorism and certainly that violent extremism of being um, recruited becomes increasingly or made possible when you have large numbers of young people who are dissatisfied. What we're facing in the short and to medium term is something akin to the end of the Great Depression. What we're going on during the Great Depression, we're going to have large numbers of people who are unemployed, socially isolated, with the connections that they normally have to broader family, broader community and close friends severed to some extent. And they're going to be open to a variety of influences in that electronic environment, that cyber environment. Um, and certainly that's one of my concerns is, is what we will see is, is uh, an increasing efforts by right-wing extremists, by Salafi jihadists, amongst others, to try to recruit and say and provide, a, I guess, a solution, a sense of, of direction for those people who are lost in this crisis. Now, John, that leads us into the whole issue of right-wing terrorism. Uh, I can remember several years ago, uh, an ASIO annual report raised concerns about right-wing terrorism. We, at the time, were inclined to think, well, that, that's a concern, but, but where's it coming from? Is this just coming from disadvantaged people on the right? And, and what's driving it? Is it just disadvantage and uh, a feeling that there needs to be somebody responsible for a malaise of some sort? Brendan, you know, it's, uh, part of this is historical as well. I think it's really important to highlight that ASIO have been pursuing right-wing extremists since roughly the 1980s at least, if not before then. They've taken many shapes and sizes. At times they've been quite militant. So we had uh, the Aussie Loyal Freedom Scouts in Canberra and who had access to running training camps in the 90s or early 90s. We've had various iterations. What's changed now, though, is that we're seeing, and certainly this is my perspective, which is a couple of things. We're seeing a mainstreaming of, of those very extremist right-wing views. Now, let's look at, you know, at the political levels, Fraser Anning's speech, this infamous speech, is an example of that. You know, talking about the final solution in such a flippant manner. 
I really do think that that's, that's part of what we've seen, in, certainly in Australia, is this normalisation. Secondly, we see the effects of boiling away of, of uh, broader social media. So people feel much more comfortable, and there's something I, in discussions with the other authors, people feel much more comfortable making extremist remarks on Facebook than they would do if they were at Coles or Woolworths here in Canberra. And I think that that really says something. So one of the weak points we've had in the past in terms of understanding right-wing extremism is that in the Australian context, we've always had this sort of storming or forming and storming process. So organisations would quickly form, they'd have internal fights, they lacked a central dogma, and they'd end up, you know, splitting into two or three other organisations and off they'd go again. What we're seeing now is that with the dark web and with social media, we're seeing our right-wing extremists joining more broadly across the globe, and they're redefining their history in this way. So some of them are sort of sitting there identifying with the history of right-wing extremism in the US as their sort of history and legacy rather than the potted history of it in Australia that it actually was. So I think that what we're seeing now is the products of that we face the right-wing extremism problem of today is very different than what we had, say, in the 80s and 90s. I think that that speech, that normalising speech that's gone across from the very senior levels of politics down to the very um, public spaces of social media is really what the big challenge is here. And we have to turn that around in terms of what's acceptable in terms of speech. Now, where do you think we're going with this? Like you, you see walking through the streets now... Only if you're sort of alert to it because you're concerned about terrorism and various other things, society seems to have become much more culturally mixed. In fact, we, you, you see mixed people would, who would be considered a mixed race all over the place. Where does the, the balancing point come on this? Is society gradually going to overcome the, a minor element of, of right-wing extremism, or is it something that can still get worse, even though we become more mature and grown up and culturally accepting generally? Um, unfortunately, Brendan, I think that this isn't going to on its own get better. I think it is going to get worse, and especially against the backdrop of harsh economic times. And I think that we'd seen this in general with the GFC, and its impacts on economies. But I think this time around, it's going to, like I said earlier, I think it's going to be a lot tougher. And I think this is where, whilst we're fighting the immediate crisis of, of COVID-19 across the globe, we're fighting on the second front, which is the economic side of the house, trying to save both Australia and the globe in the terms of the G20 from entering into a, a great recession or a great depression. I think another part of that conflict really needs to be on countering violent extremism early and now. Um, it's going to be about trying to make sure that there aren't people targeted. And a good example of this is that it's fair to say that COVID-19 finds its origins in a wet market in Wuhan in China. It's probably unacceptable to call it the Chinese virus, similar to call it the Wuhan virus. And I think there's a good example of just a small piece of language that if it's not treated appropriately now, could come back to haunt us in the years to come. John, very interesting. Now, are, are right-wing ex extremists more likely to operate as what's called lone wolves or, or as groups, or do they just basically gain support for their ideas on, on, on the net? You know, I wish we could we could make a, um, a single statement on that and say, well, you know, 
for instance, in the old days, and, and I've worked against them as a target in the early 90s, I would suggest that, you know, they were capable of small group attacks. You know, they burned down, if you look back some of the history of burning down Chinese um, takeaway shops and restaurants or training small militias. So they are capable of organising, but at the same time, unfortunately, we can't rule out the whole Tarrant issue um, and the Christchurch attack. My take is is that there's a certain dimensions of this problem. On one side, we have the, the issue of language and the broader discussion of language in society. Unfortunately, places like the now shut down HN, you know, the dark places of the web, what it allows is for the worst of the worst of right-wing extremists to get together, um, to share dogma, to encourage each other, and to encourage uh, attacks. And I think out of that is where we're going to see lots of, well, possibly see lone wolf type attacks or lone actor attacks. And that is unfortunately a reality. Now, how many and how they'll manifest, well, I mean, this is all about those two components to threat. On one side is the intent to do something, and there's definitely people with the intent to do something. On the other is the capability. To reiterate, you know, in terms of capability, our security services in Australia and our police have been and our legislators, our government, have been highly effective at preventing access to semi-automatic weapons, both legal and illegal, access to explosives and their um, precursors. Unfortunately, you can't take away cars, knives, etc., and, and they're going to remain a problem, unfortunately, Brendan. With the strong focus all over the world on the virus and, and the strong measures, lockdowns and all the rest of it, and policing these measures... Are authorities still able to keep their focus on terrorism? I would turn around and say to you this, they can ill afford not to. It is going to be difficult, though, and certainly certainly the government's focus, whether you're in Washington, D.C., London or Canberra, or levels of government all over the place are really going to be pre-focused at the moment on the, on the two fronts that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has talked about over the last several weeks, which is fighting coronavirus on the, on the protecting people and the health issue and fighting the flow-on effects of an economic crisis. So certainly I would argue that the central focus that we've had for such a long period of time on legislation is not going to be there. But this is why the security agencies themselves and the policing and law enforcement agencies across the globe need to double down on their efforts. Uh, and it's why we also need to be thinking about our counter-violent extremism programs. And I think that's what's going to be critical over the next six to 12 months. And we can ill afford not to think about them. John, thanks very much. Thank you, Brendan. Finally, John speaks to contributing authors Peter Lowe and Elise Thomas about the key themes in the 2020 edition of the Counterterrorism Yearbook. Hi, I'm John Coyne, the Head of the Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. I'm also the co-editor of the 2020 CT Yearbook. And today we're here to talk about uh, some of the key issues and themes that have come out of that publication. I'm speaking with Peter Lowe, the principal consultant from Prenesis. I'm also here with Elise Thomas, one of our analysts from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute from the uh, International Cyber Policy Centre. Um, welcome to both of you. Look, this is one of those big benchmark reports that ASPE produces every year, and we're in the fourth edition. Now, on the positive side, what we did see in 2019 was this sort of decline in Salafi jihadist attacks globally, um, which was on the plus side. 
However, what we also saw was was the terrible tragic attacks in 2019 um, in Christchurch. And we've had this sort of resurgence in terms of right-wing extremism. And I, I think that there's no doubt that one of the key themes that have come out of the report really is, is that a lot of this, this regrowth of um, right-wing extremism has a lot to do with the normalisation of hate speech and the normalisation of some very extreme views in terms of right-wing extremism. So I guess leading off with you, Elise, I mean, what is your observations of what's changed in the last 12 months? I mean, I think we've seen sort of a, a gradual, like, continuation of that that trend, which has been in place for several years, of sort of the, the online discourse becoming, uh, so I, I suppose, the, the sort of the really extreme and violent rhetoric, which has always been there, but it's sort of creeping more and more on to some of the mainstream platforms and it's sort of becoming normalised in a way that is really concerning. So, like, for example, some of the sort of really off-coloured jokes about the Holocaust, about rape, about murder, about just these really violent far-right movements becoming sort of, if not mainstream, then certainly closer to the mainstream than they used to be. And I think that has to do with sort of the rise of populism and the rise of right-wing parties across the world, really. And in terms of, I guess one thing for me is, is that I look at this and some of the things that you read online in mainstream social media, um, people would never dream of saying sort of, you know, down at the local Coles or Woolworths store, yet there seems to be something that anonymity and social media allows people to say things that what they wouldn't otherwise say. Now, how do we get in front of that sort of trend? I mean, that, that is the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think it's – look, I'm not sure it's just anonymity, particularly because, you know, there are a lot of places in which you are not really all that anonymous online anymore. Part of the way that they get away with, with saying some of, the, you know, the, the things that they do is sort of this – the use of humour I think is really interesting. So there's, there's, it's really easy to sort of say something and say, oh, no, it was just a joke or, you know, oh, don't, don't be so politically correct. Um, and, you know, we, we've even seen um, – was it Donald Trump who came out recently and sort of accused the coronavirus response of being connected to political correctness? Like it, yep. was, it was just, just, yeah, yeah, things like that. When you've got sort of the, the President of the United States standing up in public on Twitter and saying something like that, you know, it's, it's not surprised that the, that has an impact on the discourse across the rest of the social yep. media sphere. And it's the same thing when you sort of look at, you know, it's not like the social media sphere is somehow isolated from the rest of the information ecosystem. So when you have these race baiting articles in various tabloids, you know, a lot of really Islamophobic reporting, even in some very mainstream publications, all of that seeps into the online discourse and it um, shapes the tenor of those discussions. And I, I guess it's feeding off it. It is very easy to say it's one thing or the other, though. You know, like it's, it's as much feeding off that political discourse that you see, the normalisation of, say, uh, speeches like Fraser Annings, and then you're seeing it normalised in mainstream social media, and then you're seeing it accelerated in those dark places in the web that those who are really trying to hide what they're doing uh, congregate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a collision of mutual interests, unfortunately. Um, and yeah. it, I think it is, it, like, it is... It, like, you know, you, you don't want to let a cycle like that pick up momentum because then it sort of um, sort of develops its own motion. It's very hard to stop. Yeah. Now, Pat, you've been on the front line in terms of, of, of DRAD and counter-violent extremism in New South Wales, and now you've moved on and you're, and you're in that sort of private consulting world and strategy world. Now, it's not like that this right-wing extremist problem happened overnight. This is something you've observed for some time in um, New South Wales? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it, it came to a head, obviously, quite publicly um, with Christchurch, but the underlying ideology has 
been in our communities and particularly when you look at that kind of blurring between hate speech and the the notion of uh, racism and where is the line between political or racial vilification and extremist ideology that's aligned with right wing. Um, It's been in our communities for as long as probably longer um, in Australia than Islamist extremism has. And so what we've seen recently is more of a focus definitely and and probably rightly so post Christchurch, more of a direct strategy to address it and manage it. But that doesn't mean that people haven't been engaging in trying to reduce the impacts of right-wing extremism for a lot longer than that. No, look, and I remember, I mean, I began my career in the early 90s working against right-wing extremist groups in southeast Queensland. You know, I remember looking and, and dealing with groups such as um, the Aussie Loyal Freedom Scouts who were doing military training in the early 90s, etc. So, you know, and I think this is where a lot of people sort of think that this, this just arrived somehow more recently, but there is a long, rich history. And I think the difference, though, is that it seems to have been much more organised now than it ever has been in the past. And many of the messages that we're seeing out there, at least picked up on this as well, you know, that they're being mainstreamed. Now, in terms of your efforts in the past and dealing with these sort of the kids in education systems who are showing early warning signs or people in detention, does CBE work and are we winning, and especially in the right-wing extremist space, or have we put too much effort into looking at CBE programs for Salafi jihadism as opposed to um, right-wing extremism? Look, that's such a complex question. Uh, In my experience, CBE works far better than de-radicalisation, for want of a better term, or disengagement. And so prevention is always better than cure, particularly when you're dealing with uh, entrenched beliefs. Um, Human beings naturally hold on to the things that they believe. They make them who they are. So if you can intervene much earlier in that process and be able to identify, you know, what's feeding those beliefs or that narrative and try and divert people away from that, then, of course, that's got to be better for society. The impacts on society of just hate generally are huge, let alone when that hate manifests into an ideology that then directs the behaviour so I do think CBE is far more effective in my experience, particularly with young people, you know, who haven't really formed their beliefs yet, who are really vulnerable to messages and who don't always do the critical thinking that they should. It's it's much easier to intervene with young people early. The yeah. earlier, the better. And that's why it's really important that frontline staff, all frontline staff understand that this is a risk to a young person, the same yeah. as any other risk we'd be looking at. I just wanted to hang for this question um, on the sort of the, I guess, the historical trajectory of far-right extremist groups in Australia because, and, you know, I, I don't have as long a history of working in this space as, as either of you, I suspect. My sense is that a lot of the members of at least the far-right online groups, the ones that I sort of tend to spend more time watching, do not themselves have a sense of the history of the far-right in Australia. Like, they they don't have a deep knowledge of those those groups in the 90s. They don't have a deep knowledge of the groups in the 70s, groups in the 80s. They're very disconnected from that historical trajectory and that they're much more a part of sorry they're much more a part of sort of a a global media ecosystem they're very plugged into the US media ecosystem um, this sort of globalized far-right picture and they're actually quite separated from perhaps what we might call the I don't want to use the word native Australian but the 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 Australian specific far-right movement there's quite a separation there what do you guys think? There's no doubt that some of the groups that formed in the certainly in the 80s and 90s had capable of violence. They were organised, uh, but one thing that kept on happening, and we've seen it replicated even recently, this sort of storming and form, forming and storming. There's no central belief system between the various groups in the history that have allowed them to sort of continue on. So, 
you know, you'd see, um, you know, you'd see them just sort of a group of form. It'd be around for a very short period of time, and then it'd fall mm. apart. And so that's what made it less successful. I think it's very different, and the online environment has made it um, a little bit different. And secondly, I think it's it's my gut feel is that it's changed for Australian right wing extremists. They're identifying their history with sort of the more global history, and I think that's particularly dangerous. I don't know. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think also there's been quite a reaction in the far right that. It's built upon that kind of hate and fear that you get in the polarisation that occurs with Islamist extremism anyway. So you do have long-standing entrenched right and far-right views in the community, but then you've also got quite reactionary far-right views as well that are in the conversations that I've had that are definitely a reaction to a particular context that we're experiencing in society. And whether that's immigration, whether that's a response to a particular incident, Islamist incident across the world. So I think what you're saying is right. Those groups kind of form as an issues response and they'll draw from a collective of information that's easily accessible to them when you Google far-right extremism. They're not necessarily as organised and they don't tend to last as long. They have a massive burst of people who go, yes, we're really angry about that, we're really upset about that or we're really fearful. But I do think there is persistent groups with persistent ideologies and what they're doing is no different than other groups that tend to try and stay under the detection threshold. You know, we've been identified, that's problematic for us. We need to shift and move and change in order to stay outside of the detection threshold. I was just wondering, like, if, if they have, if these are groups which have different social structures, so if you could say that sort of, for example, there's a kind of a large incohate sort of cultural movement type group who are the group on the forums um, who, but in terms of the like, the action they're likely to take, it's likely to be along the lines of Tarrant, like like a lone person will, will launch an attack as opposed yeah. to much more structured, organised groups on the other hand. Do you have to pursue different CBE approaches with those groups or do, can, you, can you approach it in the same way? From my perspective, I'd be looking at what are you trying to achieve. Working with an individual, I think the process would be similar. You know, it's understanding what it is that pushed, pulled, persuaded an individual to get involved in that group, whatever that group is. Obviously, if you're targeting the group, yeah, you'd want to understand the group dynamics a little bit better, the purpose of the group, um, how the group forms and stays together, their connectedness, and they would be very different strategies, targeting strategies for the groups. But I think if you're targeting individuals, you know, individuals getting involved in anything, there's a motivation for them. They're motivated by something. If you can work that out and if that's something that you can work on with that individual around their belief structure, um, that process for me hasn't been any different no matter who I'm working with or how far along that kind of spectrum that they are, um, it obviously becomes more difficult the more entrenched those beliefs are. And in my experience, it's particularly diff- difficult with Islamist extremists because um, of the nature of that ideology. Well, I guess my thing is that um, we have been, and this is a theme that has come out across the yearbook, is that we, the West and specifically Australia has been very successful in terms of um, disrupting plots um, of all types. Um, in our intelligence work, our investigations work, uh, etc. The theme that really came out is how much more we need to do around 
to those really early stages. I'm going to pick up um, in something that you said, Peter, which is, you know, this is um, the ability to critically analyse information coming in as a young person or as a not-so-young person in this modern age. To me, that critical thinking is a, is a key component of CBE in the long term, and I wonder where we start with that because certainly in our age groups and, and certainly in our, in our occupations, we, you know, we'll read different types of newspapers and based on who the author was or who the um, their outlet is, we'll assess what sort of confidence we put in the article or the information being presented. But that's not yes. the case anymore. And, and, and I guess to me, and I, I'm looking at both uh, you and Elise here, you know, look, how do we introduce more critical thinking um, into the general audience so we can reject some of these ideas well before we have to enter into a, you know, a DRAD program? Look, it's such a great question and particularly working with um, young people. And if you think about kind of where we were as a society and a community even 20 years ago with other kind of social health concepts like suicide and drug use, that education, and we assume people have a lot of information that they don't. So even simple basic things with kids like explaining to them how the the algorithms work in search engines uh, yep. So that when you start searching something, you just get more of that information. It becomes that real echo chamber. And we assume that because young people interact with technology far better than we do, that they have a level of understanding about that. So even simple basic messaging around, do, you know, educating our kids around that is helpful. Um, it's also, I think it's important that we don't shut conversations down. And one of the things I guess that's a really tricky balance for the government is deciding what they do about the amount of of extremist content that is available quite readily to anyone in the community and how we manage that. So we can very much remove that and take it down well. You know, we can work to do that. Um, The question for me is then what conversations are we not having? And if we're not having them, who is? So it becomes a vacuum that gets filled. So how do we have more proactive? And I I don't like counter-narratives so much. I think they're not as useful. How can we be more proactive in our narratives so we are putting out as much messaging that is balanced and the perspectives that allow people to understand that it is, you know, it's a context that you have to engage in, have a conversation, challenge that thinking. But if we don't talk about it, my concern is who is filling that void? Because people will have those questions. Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, we're in, I think there's a couple of things. One is that we are in very difficult waters when it comes to sort of relying on critical thinking and sort of assessment of sources um, as as a way of, um, counteracting extremism. So, for example, a few years ago, you would have said the United States president was a reliable source. Can we say that today? You know, and so we are, we are in this era where there is there is this constant questioning of, of truth and source and, and reliability. There is a really, we have a really divided partisan media, um, and I think that's contributing to the problem. Um, and I also think there are some I think one of the things that we could do in addition to focusing on critical thinking skills is look at ways that we can unpick the industry of the far right because there is a business model there. Like there's a reason that these tabloid rags sort of print these incredibly Islamophobic incendiary articles because it makes them money. Um, there, are, there is a reason there are so many like fringe websites printing this, these, you know, misogynistic, Islamophobic, um, anti-Semitic, these, you know, these really vile, violent content because they get clicks. It drives money. It, like it, it is a profit-making um, profit making enterprise. Um, same thing with sort of the far right media ecosystem, the Breitbart's, um, the sort of the, the people in that Nick Fuente, like sort of people people in that media ecosystem, they're in there, like I'm, I'm sure they are also true believers, but also they make money. It's an industry. Um, and we need to sort of unpick 
we need to find a way to unpick that um, because, you know, the, the that industry is an industry which relies on advertising. It relies on the same sort of social and, and psychological triggers that make traditional advertising, traditional media effective. So I, I think that has to be a part of it as well. It's such a tricky issue because that speaks to the majority, you know, I mean, how, how do you get the majority of the population who aren't at either ends of that spectrum involved in that conversation? And that's really the trick, isn't it? It's making sure that people who have more balanced views that might, you know, reflect a little bit of each end get media attention and airtime as well, because all you get is the very extreme of either end. And look, I think that this is going to be one of the pressing issues, you know, obviously we wrote, um, we wrote each of our chapters and the entire report for this year's yearbook was written before uh, coronavirus hit the world. Um, you know, and unfortunately what we're going to see out there this year is, a, is an increasing number of people who are going to be disenfranchised, mm. upset, um, angry, uh, looking for someone to blame. And they're going to be out there in the world right now being bombarded over the next several months with all manner of social media and commentary, et cetera. Um, and it's going to be a tough period. And I think that whilst this doesn't change the material that we have produced within this year's CT yearbook, and I think it also makes this importance about ultimately, you know, we need to make sure that our young people in the education system are coming out ready and being able to um, critically explore what's being pushed in front of them and seeing it for its foibles and weaknesses. Now, whether that's listening to statements by the current US president um, and, and looking and saying, you know, what parts of that are likely to be true and not, but it's about providing them the mechanism. And certainly, as I said, this year is going to be going to be a critical year in that CBE, that proactive piece in terms of CT. I'm on behalf of uh, Asti, I'd like to thank you both for producing chapters in this year's um, CT yearbook. And I'm really happy and recommended those who are listening to the podcast to pick up this year's CT yearbook on the Asti website and to have a look and read through the chapters and see really critically what how the messages and key themes will be likely to be changed with what has happened um, with the rapid spread, spread of COVID-19 across the globe. Um, and with that said, thank you very much to both of you. Thanks very much, both. That's it for this special episode of Policy, Guns and Money. The Counterterrorism Yearbook is now available on our ASPE site. You'll find a link to the downloadable PDF in the episode description below. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard here today. You can tweet us at ASPE underscore org. Keep an ear out for our next regular episode later this week. We'll see you then.